Dear Shafiq, Shafiq, I'm working too very hard every day, but not very well. Maybe I have the same problem you have, a problem of space. I'm trying to finish some portraits started these last few months. I've promised myself that I must finish them. Why, I don't know. Maybe because I want to prove to myself that I can will my talent and experience in painting to do what I want it to do, and not only permit it to take me into its own directions. What you just heard was a snippet of a letter sent by Lebanese art critic and artist Helen Khal to fellow artist Shafika Boud on September 23, 1974. It's one of dozens of amazing items in a new exhibition at Beirut's Sursok Museum titled At the Still Point of the Turning World, There is the Dance. It features not only the work of Helen Khal and Aboud, but many others that were part of their circle in the 1960s and 70s, including Etel Adnan, Simon Fatal, Farid Haddad, Huguet Kaland, and many others. The exhibition is incredible. So I asked the curators if they would come on the podcast and talk to me about this unique show that's finally giving this very cosmopolitan era of Lebanese art its due. I'm Harag Bartanyan, and this is the Art Movements Podcast from Hyperallergic. You've probably noticed something else unique about this episode. Instead of using conventional music, we decided to use the live recording from the streets of Beirut I recorded just last week. As you may have already heard, there are nationwide protests in Lebanon that have brought together hundreds of thousands of people onto the streets. And they're demanding an end to corruption and some of the other ills that have plagued Lebanese society for decades. If you want to learn more about what's going on, you could check out my articles on the website. We're staying abreast of the latest developments. And we'll use that sound throughout the episode, if only to remind you that while the interview was taking place in the elegant Sursok Museum, the city all around was invigorated by the radical energy of protest. And at the conclusion of this episode, we have another special treat. We have the full text of Helen Khal's letter to Shafiq Aboud, read by Rachel Dedman. It'll be followed by a few minutes of sounds from the protest to close things out, and hopefully give you a sense of what was going on in Beirut at the time. So let's get started. First up, Rachel and Carla. Hi, I'm Rachel Dedman, and up till now I've been an independent curator based in Beirut, but I'm moving back to London to join the V&A as Jamil Curator of Contemporary Art from the Middle East. Carla Shamas, I've been in the art world since 1986, and I've had an art gallery for 28 years, CRG Gallery in New York, closed it a little over two years ago, and started to be involved in projects. This is my first quote-unquote, museum exhibition. Well, we're standing here at the Sursok Museum at the exhibition itself, which is titled At the Still Point of the Turning World, There is the Dance. So do one of you want to explain the title of the exhibition? Sure. So this is people who know modern poetry might recognize this as a kind of bastardized uh, quote from T.S. Eliot. 
from the Preludes, I think, and Helen Khal, who was the artist really at the centre of the exhibition and was the catalyst for the project, was a big fan of, of Eliot. And in an interview, she describes, she sort of misquotes Eliot and says that this was the, at the kind of um, heart of what she was trying to do as an artist. She was seeking the still point and trying to find it through colour. And because the exhibition is so invested, not only in artists from the, the 60s and 70s when she was working, but also in relationships with the literary landscape of the time and the ways that Arabic modernism was looking at, at Eliot and Ezra Pound and Wyndham Lewis and those sorts of writers, we felt like this was a really fitting title and sort of enigmatic place from which to begin. So Carla, I was wondering if you could sort of talk about the artists in the show and specifically which artists are in the show and why those were selected. So the show, as Rachel pointed out, is basically Helen Hall being the catalyst. And we sort of looked at the period and who were the artists at that time. Helen was a painter, an artist herself, but also a writer, an art critic, as well as a teacher. She surrounded herself and befriended the community, the artistic community in Lebanon. She was married to a poet, Youssef Khal, who was quite important in, on the scene and basically changed the way poetry was written, Arabic poetry was written. So he also had a great number of friends, you know, writer, poets, theater, uh, actors, uh, filmmakers. So they were, they were quite important on the cultural scene in the 60s and 70s in Lebanon. Helen befriended Shafi Aboud. She was his uh, lover for many years. Her best friend was Huguette Callan, also an artist, a very important artist at the time. She was great friends with Salwa Raudashouker, who was older than her, but kind of visited her once a week and used to go to her studio and sit with her and talk about art. She had a number of younger students, such as Farid Haddad, who she befriended much later when she spent time in the U.S. They had a very nice friendship and correspondence and so each other. She also, the mentor was Arif Reyes, who was an artist very present at the time and who encouraged Helen to, you know, explore her artistic side. So uh, Yvette Ashar, who is also one of the artists of the show, was an abstract painter and was very present at the time as well, part of that circle of friends. And Etel Hadnan and Simon Fatal, who were partners, and basically Etel was a great poet. And as Rachel pointed out, you know, a lot of the Yusuf being so present on the scene in terms of his uh, interest in poetry, and started this magazine called Sher and invited Etel to write and participate in a lot of the issues, uh, amongst other great poets. So Etel had a very close relationship with Yusuf Khal and Simone being her uh, also part of that circle and being very present in the late 60s, early 70s on the scene here. And Dorothy Sahab Kasimi, who is the ceramicist in the exhibition and who studied in Copenhagen and came came back to Lebanon and unfortunately died very young, but also was a friend of Helen's. One of the things that's amazing is about the show is you've really worked to center a lot of the women 
in this period and also around these relationships. I'm wondering if that was a conscious decision, if that came naturally out of the research and how you think that sort of influenced the way the exhibition evolved. I think it was a little bit of both because we had this idea to use aspects of Helen's life and practice as catalysts for unfolding some of these bigger themes that united all the artists. One of those was a book that Helen wrote for which maybe she's best known, which is called The Woman Artist in Lebanon. And she wrote it in the 1970s, though it wasn't published till after the Lebanese Civil War in the late 80s. And she wrote it, she was commissioned to do it by the Institute for Women's Studies in the Arab World, who were interested in the fact that in this period there were a lot of women artists in Lebanon, had one of the highest proportion of female to male artists, like that ratio was healthy, much healthier than the US or or other Western contexts at the time, and Helen was interested in why and did a lot of interviews with with women at the time, wrote this book with profiles of women. And what she understood is that there were these kind of contradictory conditions and factors at play. On the one hand, women, especially women of a certain class, were able to become artists, were free to do so, were not expected necessarily to be breadwinners of their family, had the freedom to become artists. On the other hand, many were really expected to maintain the roles of wives and mothers and this sort of societal position that could be could be restrictive. These are dynamics we recognize very well today. So thinking about that and looking, you know, for us looking at the ways in which women were working as artists, as mothers or as women who chose not to marry or chose not to have children was sort of an important thing for the exhibition to explore, looking at relationships between women, friendships, kinships, love relationships, partnerships was something that is sort of at the heart of of bringing a more intimate look to this period. And one whole section is really exploring gender, love, sexuality, parenthood. And part of that involves thinking about how, for women, the innate sensuality of the body and its erotic potential was this consistent source of inspiration. And then next to it, you've got these amazing, graphic, beautiful, flat, erotic works by Huguette Calon, these uh, sexy ceramics by Dorothy Salhab Kazimi, and then this sort of more remote look at the socio-sexual landscape of the time by Ada Freyas painting The Prostitutes of Almutanabi Street. So to sort of draw out those conditions was an aim of ours that was conscious for sure absolutely i mean when you say sexy ceramics they're a little (laughs) beyond sexy i think um which is which is it really i mean part of their power right because they're sort of rooted in like genitals and these type of forms that are very both explicit but poetic Mm. now carla as a gallerist you've brought some of these artists like Houcher to the new york and i remember seeing the exhibition when you did that for instance and i'm wondering how those were received because exhibitions like this often educate people about whole periods, but you had shown some of these artists in different kinds of contexts. And I'm wondering what you learned from that experience that you bring to an exhibition like this. When we showed Salwa Rauda Shukir in New York, it was actually stunning to see the reaction of the public and the curators, which was really very enlightening in a way. And you kind of see today in the contemporary world, especially in the past I'd say five years, this great interest in women artists and women artists from around the world. So we are really looking back 
and at the period of the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, across the board. And basically, it's the lack of interest that curators have expressed in the past and kind of ignored. I mean, women have been ignored, and we can see, you know, what's happening today. And so showing Salwa in the States was very timely, in a way. We were very lucky because, you know, it was very timely. And also, people were surprised to see that this woman who lived in total isolation really brought something to art history. And so it's really been an amazing journey to work with Salwa's work, to place it in major museums, and for her to get the recognition she really deserves. And I very proudly can say that the new installation of the Museum of Modern Art, which actually is a bit, you know, proof of what's going on with the progression of how we look at art and how we can make the connections, you know, between artists and times of different places. Salwa is, you know, the installation of Salwa's sculpture uh, next to Lydia Pape and Lydia Clark and Ellsworth Carey is absolutely amazing. So, yes, and the Art Institute has her with Henry Moore and uh, Arp and Giacometti in the room, so we can't be more, you know, pleased about this. It sounds like a beautiful artistic conversation. Now, Carla, I wanted you to talk a little bit about, because, you know, the 60s and 70s in Beirut and Lebanon is often seen as this golden era, this golden age. It gets very much romanticized. But, you know, working in the archives and with this research, what did you learn about that era that perhaps you didn't know before? Well, you know, I I have to say preface because... This, this exhibition is really important to me personally as a Lebanese. I really did not know anything about this period or very superficially looked at the period. And because I lived uh, since 1978, I lived abroad. So to come back and to really put effort into looking at what our culture has to offer was a great, great satisfaction. And when the exhibition came about, it was really stunning to see how I was, you know, talking to Jota Rob, who's a very well-known, established historian here in Lebanon. And one of the things he told me was Lebanon in the 60s was just this amazing place where people met from all over the Middle East, from North Africa as well. So intellects, creative people, politicians from different backgrounds, different social classes, different, and it didn't really matter. I mean, there was enormous discussion. They were uh, sharing political, social ideas. Artists were very friendly with one another. They were, even though they disagreed on, you know, a lot of things, you know, creative process or political, they came from different political parties. It really didn't matter. And so Lebanon this way was very rich, you know, to the exchanging of ideas and political views was, you know, as he puts it, you know, he said to me, you know, they used to meet in Hamra at the Horseshoe and, you know, people had their own chairs, they'd come and debate, you know, what was going on in Egypt, in Iraq, in Syria, but there were debates and there were constructive debates, they were exchanging of ideas. So 
when we first started to look at this period was very, you know, finding in the research how Helen tackled, you know, art criticism and went to every single show. And in fact, the commercial Gary, Gary One, and later Contact Gary, showed artists from the Middle East and North Africa. And also there were some Chinese artists who lived in Lebanon. There were American artists who lived in Lebanon. And all of that you know, energy was just really wonderful. And Lebanon was a very open country, very welcoming, very sort of, you know, inviting all these different ideas to come about. And it was just really amazing to basically go through that research and find that, yes, it was, this is what the golden era was about. It was basically sharing all of these ideas, you know. I think the only thing that I would add is that that cosmopolitanism and mixity and sort of rich discourse that Carla describes is certainly true, but was true for a very particular kind of class and in very particular sorts of spaces. And it was important for me to be aware that in looking at all these artists, of course, that none of that privilege negates the work that they did or were doing and their contribution to art history. But it is important to remember that, you know, that is not representative of the entirety of the country at the time, that outside of those uh, elite spaces where that conversation on politics could happen, ethnocentrism remained extremely urgent, sectarianism, these systems that we're seeing right now, you know, blow up in the streets, they were set in place, you know, from the very beginning of Lebanese modernity, the end of the Ottoman period and a French mandate put in place this system and that was very present there because that's what allowed, of course, Lebanon to stutter into a civil war from 1975. So I think just remaining aware that we're talking about a particular group of people when we're thinking about that is fundamental to looking at the period. And Carla, these artists were very much bohemian. I mean, these were not people who had a lot of money and they, and they, you know, could you tell us a little bit about their lives? I mean, in, in terms of that aspect of their, of their work and life? So uh, Helen didn't really have money. I mean, Helen got married to a poet and she had a very bitter divorce. Her husband took her two children and she really, you know, throughout her life, you know, was living, I wouldn't say misery, but it was a very difficult life for Helen financially. And many people may not know Helen was actually born in the United States and yes. moved. Moved. That's something actually I, I wasn't aware of initially. Do you want to also address that? How that I mean, she, she was born in Pennsylvania of Lebanese parents. Her name was Helen Trozef. She comes to Lebanon with her mother on a trip in the 40s. She really, I guess, falls in love with Lebanon, uh, the country, the, the landscape, the person, you know. And she comes back and she basically, in a way, I think part of the success of Helen was the fact that she was American and she was able to really comprehend. I mean, she goes back to the States with her husband, Youssef, who was working at the UN, I believe, at the time. And she does attend the New York school. Was it the New York, uh, the, the student, the student league, uh, the art student league? Yeah, for a year, I believe. And so she was. was she went back forty-seven, forty-eight, something yeah. like that. Oh, so it was kind of the peak of like the brewing of the New York school. This kind of Absolutely. energy. 
Absolutely. In fact, you know, I did call the New York Student League just to see if they had any records of, you know. I mean, part of the also what makes me curious about this period, which we can apply to also, say, Salwaro de Chouquer, who also worked in Paris at the time, you know, was part of the Fernand Léger schools, you know, studio, is to see who did these artists encounter, you know, who did they meet while they were in New York, while they were in Paris, you know. And unfortunately, there's no record of this, or if there is, I couldn't find any. I'm sure if, you know, we had time and dug a little more, we can find, you know, something like this. But in her writing, we have not come across anything except for the fact that she was very uh, respected and found of Rothko, you know, which we can see in her work, really reflected in her work, her influence of, you know, Mark Rothko. But we can't, you know, other than that, there isn't, any direct connection to any other artist, which a bit surprises me. The same with Salwa. She never talked about particularly meeting anyone or befriending anyone in, the, in, the, in that, you know. And I know that some of the South American artists uh, were there at the time, some Eastern European artists as well, you know, important. So, you know, it's another exhibition mm-hmm. to think about. But she was clearly taking it all in because, like you said, with these new reinstallations of major museums... I mean, seeing her in dialogue with Henry Moore or Barbara Hepworth seems totally natural. Well, and what we have in the last section of the show actually is a small exhibition pamphlet from Dial Fenn, important gallery space from the 70s. And in 1970, there was an exhibition of seven British sculptors here in Beirut, including Henry Moore, Barbara Hepworth, and all of that sort of British gang. And then, you know, we found in the estate of Arif Reyes, his foundation, these amazing images of his sculptures being sent back to Leeds and exhibited in the UK, not not long after. So this idea that, yeah, the route of inspiration only goes one way, west to east, is of course a fallacy. And there's this much more symbiotic conversation happening between and across artists and, and these contexts. I just wanted to add, um, in the 50s, Calder came to Lebanon, Alexander Calder, and Selwa only mentions Calder. She does, you know, mention that she was very fond of his sculptures, but that's about it. Why did he come to Lebanon? Was there a specific project? Uh, Yes, he was invited by a couple who, I forget exactly, I think they owned a bank or something, and he he was commissioned to do two works for the bank. And we found an article that basically says that Salwa was serving tea for, you know, and that's how she... But, I mean, it's one of those (laughs) things where, you know, and he never knew she was a great artist as well, but she was very, very fond of his work. Some of the other people, I mean, Huet Kalant, um, for those who may not know, was the daughter of the first independent president of mm-hmm. Lebanon. But her life was very different because after he passed away, she moved to Paris, is that right? Yeah. She, not exactly after he passed away, but she became an artist. She kind of, when he passed away, she was able to really become who she really was, a painter. And she remained here, she had a family, she married, she had three children. Huguette was, I would say, probably the most liberal of the whole group, you know, in terms of like, you know, she was a very liberal woman, she was independent, she thought independently, her creativity was, you know, some of her painting from the 60s and 70s are just, you know, a proof of, you know, her liberal ideas. And uh, she left her family and moved to Paris. 
and took lovers. And the story goes that she really didn't have any money, although she was uh, the daughter of the first president. And she walked into Pierre Cardin to buy her husband a tie. And she was wearing one of her famous uh, dresses, habaya, kaftans, with uh, some of her drawings on the kaftans. And uh, someone in the store, I guess the director, really liked what she was wearing and introduced her to Pierre Cardin. And the next thing you know, she was drawing a collection for his dresses, you know, of her uh, drawings. So that's how you get, you know, really started to make some money in Paris. And then she had a lover. They came to her son. One of her sons lived in Los Angeles, encouraged her to come to L.A. And she then established in L.A. and made her career in L.A. But again, it's a very good example of somebody who was very creative, who really took art very seriously, painted, woke up every day, went to her studio, painted every day, but did not have the recognition in Los Angeles because uh, she was not considered a serious artist because maybe one of her lovers was Ed Moses, who was himself an artist and a painter, and he would never introduce her or never took her seriously, maybe of envy, maybe... Who knows exactly why? But And he, she used to have salons of artists who, I believe Larry Bell was one of the artists who really, you know, spent time with her and other, a lot of the California school of artists. She used to have these salons and all these artists used to come and spend mm-hmm. time with her and see her work. But no one really took her seriously. And it's an interesting, again, an interesting thing that was happening. Something else that was really important for us in looking at Huguet and Helen was understanding their friendship because they're artists that in their own rights have been sort of not done justice to in terms of art history. And I think in terms of their styles of painting, you wouldn't necessarily put them side by side and be like, oh, here are two artists that were really looking at each other's work. And yet we know from the archives that they were extremely close friends and shared studio spaces throughout their lives. Uget, as we know, only became an artist later in her career, age 33, and Helen had studied younger as part of the ALBA group. ALBA is an art school here in Lebanon. exactly. The Académie Libanaise de Beaux-Arts, they were among the sort of first group, Shafiq Aboud, Yvette Ashad, Helen Khal. And so uh, Uget studied at AUB. I love the idea of her as a 33-year-old in her kaftan and sandals walking around with these like 18-year-old students all around her. And AUB is the American University of Beirut. Thank you. So what we loved understanding and seeing their letters and reading articles from the time was how much time they'd spent together in their studios. Uget had this studio in Keslik, just north of Beirut, and they went and spent in 1970 two to three months just painting there together, doing nothing else. They produced about 40 canvases between them and at the end had this open studios of the work that they'd made. They're painting from the same palette. They're looking at the same sort of work and, and ideas or subject matter. Even though Uget is making these kind of graphic, cartoon-like works and Helen is sort of moving from her portrait phase into a more colour field moment of abstraction, they're really sort of interconnected. And again, in Paris, when Helen is going through a tough time, she goes to live with Uget there, shares her studio. In LA, when they're both in their 80s, we see them like rocking down Sunset Boulevard with Shafiq Aboud and then painting in their overalls. So here, you know, these are, these are the aspects of a friendship that don't normally come down to us. They're not made visible. 
And yet, just like today, the ways, the friendships that we forge within the art world, of course, are those that affect us most richly. So looking at that was really important. So I just want to say to add, we end the show, actually. Most of the works in the show are from the 60s and 70s. We tried very hard to keep that in line. But the show ends with two works from 2009, which uh, you get did in homage to Helen after she dies. So there are two paintings, and they're called Helen One and Helen Two. And in a way, it's, it's serendipitous because you get passed away about three weeks or a month ago here in Beirut. So basically, it ends with an homage to Helen and to you get and to all these artists that are included in the show. So. The part that you mentioned about the Pierre Cardin, it reminded me of the fact that so much in the show is about these blurring of boundaries, mm-hmm. these relationships. I mean, at one point, there's furniture that one of the artists creates in their, in their home, I assume. You know, and there's also a big literary element. Mm-hmm. And the work sometimes even, I remember speaking to both of you about the work, and, you know, there's like a literary aspect even to the sculpture, that's called Poem, mm-hmm. you know, by Salwa. You know, and I wanted to ask a little bit about that. Why do you think that blurring seems so natural for this group? Mm-hmm. What was it about that, that that you think appealed to them? Well, you know, as we said, Yusuf Hal was very instrumental in the literary scene in Lebanon from the late 50s onward. Salwa, in particular, was very interested in Islamic art. I mean, her ideas came from architecture and, you know, looking at, she's a Druze, and she basically believes in the infinite. And so she was really looking at some of the aspects in Islamic art. Art, not in a religious way, but more in a, in a very sort of creative intellectual manner. And basically, we have to remember, I mean, we used to write letters, but we no longer write letters, right? We know so it, for us to find these archives of correspondence between the artists of their interest in poetry and literature was really, really important because if you look across the board, it's not just in Lebanon, it's across the board at that time. I mean, the 50s and 60s, all over, you know, Europe, America are so, so rich. I mean, there was a book recently published called The Ninth Street Women and looking at five women artists from the 60s from the late 50s, 60s, and you see the same thing happening. I mean, Elaine de Kooning, nobody really knows her as a painter, or she was ignored as a painter. She was more known as a critic and as a writer. So it really happens across the board. The same thing in Europe. So I don't think it's an isolated example. I mean, Lebanon really followed. It's not that followed, but it's, it's what was happening. I mean, literature... Theater, film, art, all of this was really happened organically, no? I think in the mid 20th century in Lebanon, what's certainly true is that there are fewer distinctions between these disciplines than maybe we have today. Artists were inherently writers, poets, and engaging with both forms of creative practice. Helen herself is um, yeah, maybe more prolific as a writer than, than as an artist and wrote a lot of poetry. Yusuf Khal, who, whom we've mentioned, was in the U.S. and very inspired by the work of Eliot, Ezra Pound, Archibald MacLeish, these, these modernist poets, those who had founded the journal Poetry in Chicago, the Review. 
And then coming back to Lebanon, Majalat Shad is literally called poetry in Arabic. So it's a version of that and trying to, to do the same thing within the Arabic language. So that meant freeing Arabic from the equivalent of iambic pentameter, right? Giving up a certain heritage or tradition of meter and trying to translate the turbulence and experience of modern life through imagism or through sort of the idea of, of directness of form and free verse in Arabic with with poets like Adonis and Etel Adnan and others that's what that he was trying to do and for me an interest in the exhibition was trying to think of the notion of free verse and that process or approach to writing as something that can be applied to looking at artists from this moment working in abstraction visually and thinking about the book as a form that sort of married both of those interests. I always wonder though about that collaborative aspect and how much you know because I do think often the art market or you know a strong art market with the lack of a strong art market I wonder whether that encouraged the collaboration because I think sometimes the art market likes to look at the individual artist you know I've had collectives tell me that often galleries will reject showing collectives because it's sort of a little more difficult than the individual did that allow a certain kind of freedom what do you think of that idea I never really thought about the art market while working on this exhibition. I mean, for me, it was all about really discovering very exciting artists and looking at their work and at the time and not really, I mean, not at all thinking about the art market. I mean, you know, I am, I'm, all my training was in the commercial world, so it's, it's stunning that, you know, in a way I never really for a second thought about, you know, what could, you know. And the reaction of people when I said, I was, they said, oh, is it for sale? You know, is the exhibition for sale? And I was horrified. So, you know, I mean, so it's very refreshing to step away from the art market. And I think um, closing the gallery made me really uh, look at things. I'm very passionate about art and still think very, every day about art and artists. And I must say the show gave me great, great satisfaction, you know, to be free from the art market, I guess. <laughs> so now, Rachel, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the fact that so much of the correspondence is in English, mm-hmm. which I think people are surprised. I mean... I know Lebanon, I know how multilingual it is. It's not as surprising to me, but I think for other people, even, you know, here we're in the midst of very major protests in Lebanon, and so much of the graffiti on the walls is in English. And I wonder if you could speak to that sort of the presence of English and even French to a certain degree, and why in this exhibition so much of that correspondence is in English. Mm-hmm. First of all, I should say that methodologically, we are two curators who, though we both speak and read Arabic, or at least more comfortable researching in, in English. So that's that's a bias that is definitely present. But in fact, even going through Helen's archive, and she was, thank goodness, a hoarder. She kept absolutely everything. Maybe because she was born and raised, at least initially in the US, even though to a Lebanese family, she predominantly wrote in English. And her correspondence was predominantly in English. And because you had this multilingual dynamic at the time, everyone grew up 
pretty much speaking Arabic and English or French, depending on your confessional background and the context of your education. That seemed to be the language of art even then, which was sort of obviously remains a kind of universal today. So that's what we see. You have certain artists even rejecting certain languages at a time. Etel Adnan, I know we struggled at a certain moment to find poetry in Arabic. A lot was written in English and then translated, things that she wrote for Majal at Shahid, because Yusuf writes to her about the translations and they're sort of going back and forth about it. At some moment, I think she rejects French as a colonial language, maybe takes it up again later. So language is this very charged thing and at the same time is this sort of is mundane. So maybe in certain cases it, there's a significance there and in others it's kind of reflective of what we've known to be true for decades, which is that English seems to be this kind of currency uh, linguistically within the art world and the language in which they communicated with one another. And all of Helen's art criticism is in English, is that correct? I would say mostly, yes. So did you want to talk a little bit about that, the presence of English? And I'm curious in the intellectual sort of milieu that these artists functioned in. Hard for me to say, I mean, what, you know, but as Rachel pointed out, Beirut was quite cosmopolitan. I remember as a child, my mother is Palestinian, my dad Lebanese, and my mother went to an English school, my father to a French school. So when we were growing up, English was very present in our not-so-typical of a Christian family because, as Rachel said, it was more French was more used in Christian family as opposed to, you know. That said, we were always told that if we wanted to go out in the world and be somebody, we had to learn English and we had to speak English. So I think English was, I mean, I don't think we should stress too much on language because Lebanon was really cosmopolitan so language came easy and you know everyone was accepted so I don't think we should stress too much on the language and you know it was kind of organic automatic you know you never really thought about it and I should clarify that I was talking about written correspondence you know I'm sure on the street people talking to one another they're speaking in in Arabic, exactly. Absolutely. I think it's more to give people a context of the milieu because I think there's a little bit of surprise at that. Now, when it comes to some of the objects, I wonder if each of you could choose a favorite artwork or, you know, painting or a video that you'd like to sort of highlight for people. It's a hard choice, but I think instinctively I would, for me, to have discovered Dorothy Salhab Kasimi was really amazing and for many reasons I mean you know I I just thought that her handling of the ceramic and how she translated it in a totally not classic fashion but using classic methodology is really quite brilliant and I kept on looking at her work and of course thinking about Georgia O'Keeffe thinking about Louise Bourgeois thinking about some of the, actually some of the Eastern European artists that I've come across just recently as well. Thinking about somebody like Carol Rama, the Italian artist. And it's very hard to pick because when I look at her work and I look at Huguette Callan as well, I mean, there's such a strong relationship. I look at some of the Helen Hall works as well, Simone Fatal as well. I mean, the way this show has organically come together was really quite fun and really not just fun but I mean you know it's all there like these influences these friendships these 
just uh, correspondence between the artists, whether they knew it or not, whether it was conscious or not, is really at the end secondary because the result is there. I mean, you really see how they beautifully were interlocked with one another, even between when you look at Shafi Aboud and you look at Yvette Ashar. I mean, sometimes it's hard to, you know, at certain work, it was hard to really see what did Shafi do and what did Yvette do. We can, yeah, it was hard to really... So where did you find Kasemi's work? Like, where do some of these works actually exist? Well, I think Rachel did an amazing job in the research part of the, all that archives. We were very lucky because the archives of Helen Khal were all given to this man by the name of César Namour, who was also very important in the 60s and 70s, was one of the founders of Contact Gallery with Wadah Faris, who was an Iraqi and established in Beirut. And César kept the archives in Makam, this place that is outside of the city, this amazing place that could be a great artist in residency place. Uh, but, you know, kept them... Kala just uh, promoting Makam here. It really is worth a visit for researchers in Lebanon. Yeah. So he, amongst other... I mean, he, I mean, he had all of Helen's archives and Rachel very patiently went through every single piece of paper and, you know, pulled some amazing letters that you can see in the exhibition that are really really, I think, enlightening. But also, I have to mention Farid Haddad, who was a great artist, attended AUB, left in 75, and kept amazing archives from the period, has every single poster, book, piece of paper very diligently and is an artist in his own right, became a teacher at uh, various places and the last place in Concord, New Hampshire, where he still lives. And uh, he was very helpful in, you know, pointing in the right direction and uh, gave us everything he basically had from, from the posters and, you know, catalogs and publications. So most of these, are they in private collections? Are they in public collections? I mean, do you want to address that, Rachel? It's a little bit of both. The, the majority of collections in Lebanon are private, but that doesn't mean that some don't have a public-facing aspect or are more institutionalized. Things like the Saradard collection from Sersot Museum itself, where the exhibition is held, from the Dalul Art Foundation, and then from important collectors, people like Saleh Barakat, and then from the foundations and the estates of the artists. The Arif al Foundation, Dorothy's works of ceramics are in a little museum in her name up in Rumia, maintained by her sister. Other foundations like Salwar al and, you know, the estate of Uget Calange and Rebez Gallery. So these sorts of collections, really both small, you know, some very modest, some really private and just people who've collected this material over the years and more institutional were incredibly generous and meant that all the work in the show came from within Lebanon. So why do you think it's taken so long for the art history, this art history, to be looked at this way, Carla? It's a good question. I have no idea, um, basically, why. But I can tell you that this exhibition really resonates a great deal with the public here from the reaction, right, of the people, of the professionals and non-professionals, from collectors and non-collectors, from art lovers and non-art lovers. 
And I think this need to really dig into our history. But it will be, I mean, there's a part two and part three and God knows how many parts to this. And it's also true of maybe, you know, this idea that being from a third world place, we always have this tendency to look outside, you know, looking outside of Western culture and so on and developed countries. But if you really look on the inside, you can find a lot of great things. And uh, I think it's important to really look at one's history. And as Richard pointed out, we're living right now quite an amazing moment again in the history of Lebanon. And hopefully it will be, the outcome will be positive, we hope. And that will be another chapter as well to explore at some point. But I think Richard and I both had great satisfaction in doing this exhibition. It turned out better than we ever dreamt of, I think. Yeah, I mean, I hope we can produce a catalog. So for a more eternal, you know, what, <laughs> proof or, right. uh, you know. Life. A, li- a life past the exhibition itself. I mean, I will say, I mean, I just want to commend both of you because there isn't a single weak work in the exhibition. So, Rachel, I'm going to turn to you to pick a work yeah. out of all these very strong works that you'd like to discuss. Mm. Well, there's a work that I think is definitely not the flashiest in the show. No one's come up to me and said, God, that work really is so exciting. But I like it in a way because of that. So it's, it's a work by Helen Khal. It's a relatively small painting. And from a distance, it just appears abstract, sort of browns and blues and greens and this sort of larger form in the middle. And, but it doesn't feel like a landscape nor sort of something purely abstract, as some of her works do. And when you get up close, you understand that the the title is Shafiq Aboud in a Brown Sweater. And it's this kind of abstracted portrait. And for me, it's interesting because maybe it marks a a moment of transition. She was known for doing these very beautiful portraits of friends and her sons and family and so on. And then for her, like, really abstract colour field works. And so maybe it's a moment where she's shifting between the two. I don't know. But at the same time, it really captures the relationship between those two artists as well, who studied together at Alba in the 40s and remained friends and occasional lovers throughout their lives. And we've published next to it one of the letters that she wrote on a typewriter to uh, to Shefik in 1974 and courtesy of his estate and it she's she's talking about you know she's up and she's drinking coffee and she's been reading about psychology and right and left brain and you know how that affects her work and what he's up to and then at the end she's like all right wasn't coffee it was whiskey really got to go to bed now Uh, i'll see you next week or something and it's you know this letter is witty has integrity is sweet is playful it somehow captures helen and the way that that she and Shafiq interacted. And next to the painting, there's something, yeah, something really intimate created there. So that for me was kind of, is at the heart of like how I like to work as a curator, I suppose, in bringing artwork into conversation with this more intimate material and looking at this relationship that wouldn't normally be visible in art history, but is, is sort of inspiring to, to witness and understand. What's the biggest mystery, Carla, you wish you had the answer to? in your research of this particular group? I would be really interested in uh, finding more about how artists who met at different times in different schools, how, you know, 
Did they look at each other's work? Who was the person they were thinking of? You know, in particularly when I think of Salwa, whose work I know fairly well, you know, who did she speak to while she was uh, in the Fernand Léger school? Who were her friends? There's no, there's no record of this. Helen, when she was in New York, who did she talk to? You know, who did she have a conversation with? Did she meet Krasner? Did she know Grace Hartland? Was she, you know, did, had she ever met John Mitchell? I mean, those are questions that really intrigue me. And it's interesting that today, as museums are unfolding into the dialogue of modernism and contemporary art, you know, how they are juxtaposing artists and thinking about influences. But we really have no record of this. I mean, it's our own, we writing, you know, our own history and our own, you know, understanding of how objects or how work should be seen. So just exploring that a little more, I think, is worth it, you know. This history, Rachel, I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about how modernism for so long was sort of constrained into a straitjacket, it felt like, of very specific stories that were very much dominated by these major centers and these major writers and all these types of things. What do you think histories like this do to that history? Mm. You know, because, you know, there's a big debate on does it change the history? Is it just we have to redefine all of it? I mean, how does this work in the way you think? In my mind, it contributes to making it more messy. You know, his historiography is inherently a reductive process, one that involves whittling down at each chapter of its telling, and things inevitably get left out in the interests of brevity. And these sort of, yes, non-central spaces are not part of that mainstream narrative, which is, of course, also written by certain institutions, certain academics in certain languages and so on. So contributing to sort of push back in some nuance, make it complex and messy again, keep it uncertain, keep things ambiguous and ambivalent is, I think, important because we don't know all the answers to history. Mm -hmm. This isn't a show that's trying to be definitive by any means. There's so many different artists that could have been included in this. We went down the route of using sort of friendship and connection as the guiding sort of method of how we chose them. But there are hundreds of artists that could be looked at in this way. We chose artists who are predominantly working in abstraction. There was this whole really politicized gang working at the same time. And, you know, that this debate over committed art versus a more abstract practice was something that I think was active as well that we've not really addressed. So I, I think we see this as kind of one contribution to a much longer process that won't ever end, I hope, in kind of keeping some of these messy, less visible aspects of a history present and alive. I, I totally agree with what Rachel has said. And it's actually really interesting to see you know, again, in light of what's happening today in Lebanon, how is this history going to be written? Who's saying, I mean, you know, it's amazing. We've been bombarded by different newscasters and um, having headlines every second. And you don't really know what's true from what's not or what's real from what's not or what's, you know. So, yeah, it's really exactly what Rachel said. You know, it's messy. And so we need to really think for ourselves is really important and look at history i mean you know this thing about we learn from history what does that exactly mean 
you know, what are we learning from history? You know, what is history? And who's writing history? It's a beautiful place to stop. So <laughs> thank you so much, Carla, Rachel, for a really stunning and, and fascinating show. And I hope it'll tour so that more and more people can see it. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. Yeah. I'm Hrag Bartanyan, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. As promised, here's Rachel Dedman reading the full text of Helen Hall's 1974 letter to Shafiq Aboud, followed by a few minutes of sounds from the protests on the streets of Beirut. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week. September 23rd, 1974, 10 p.m. Dear Shafiq, Shafiq, I'm working too, very hard, every day, but not very well. Maybe I have the same problem you have, a problem of space. I'm trying to finish some portraits started these last few months. I've promised myself that I must finish them. Why, I don't know. Maybe because I want to prove to myself that I can will my talent and experience in painting to do what I want it to do, and not only permit it to take me into its own directions. Maybe I feel the need to control things, to be in command. Maybe I'm afraid to let myself go. Whatever it is, it is a problem, and I hope it will be over soon and I can return to that more exciting kind of painting that takes you into the sudden secret corners of the spirit, that opens doors you never even realised existed, the kind of painting which can give, because one's so totally involved, that exclusive quality of joy without which the creative act becomes very much like sex without love. But I want to talk to you about space, with some amusement, because your comments about your work, the way you pose your questions, are so very much like the Shafiq, Shafiq of 25 years ago. But to tell you my thoughts around space. And space is not wide, free surfaces, nor is it just the air around the object, nor the depth and dimension and compositional quality of a painting. Don't you think that romanticism and anecdotic painting must also have its space? that without space it becomes merely the expression of a literary idea? I read something this week which supports very much my idea of space. It was in an article about the psychology of consciousness, and it was describing a certain division of the brain. It seems the brain has two hemispheres. The left one, which organises reality by means of an analytical, logical, sequential way of thinking that we've learned to take for granted. And then the right hemisphere, which operates in a very different manner, is equally important but which involves a completely other way of thinking and looking at things, another way of perceiving reality. The author continues, We are all seeing things in two ways at the same time. If the left hemisphere is specialised for analysis, the right hemisphere seems specialised for holistic commentation, that is, seeing things as whole. Its language ability is quite limited. This hemisphere is primarily responsible for our orientation in space. Artistic endeavour, crafts, body image, recognition of faces. It processes information more diffusely than does the left hemisphere, and its responsibilities demand a ready integration of many inputs at once. If the left hemisphere can be termed predominantly analytic and sequential in its operation, then the right hemisphere is more holistic and relational, more simultaneous in its mode of operation. So how does this apply to painting? When we paint, we try to orient our creative intention into its own kind of space. We perceive things in a whole way, in our own private whole way, and we want to put it down on canvas. We create the space for this private vision of the whole. 
We cannot be analytical about it, as I am now with these damned portraits. The process of realizing is a very secret, devious one. But it is always a matter of orientation in space. So maybe you should think again about space. There's no valid painting without space, and you don't paint with the left hemisphere of your brain, except sometimes, like me now. You say, I love to be happy. It's my nature and my immature side. I say, I love to be happy. It's my nature and my mature side. I finally refuse to be unhappy, and I will always fight against my very dangerous tendency to fall into despair and sadness and depression. It happens often to me, but I still refuse it. Your nature is to be happy. It shows in your painting. Your best paintings are peons of joy, very insistingly pro-life, very strongly alive. Even in the bad times, when you do not paint, it is because you refuse to give shape to unhappiness. And if you do, it is an expression of a despair you don't really believe in. I guess when things are so bad, you just don't paint at all. This is the way it is with me. Either I don't paint at all, or like now, though I am not in despair, still not completely well, when I am painting only with the left hemisphere of myself. And that's all for now. I'm trying to arrange the schedule of my trip to the US. I had a letter from New York today saying that they, the AUB, are ready to help arrange a lecture tour for me, but I must tell them the dates and places I want to go. So now I must decide definite dates and things like that. I need a 1975 calendar and a map of the, UN, of the US before I can define any kind of program. Silly, but practical and true. I will most probably still be here for part of the time you are here. Are you coming to Beirut in January? I don't think I will leave until March. There are things I must finish here, besides gathering enough money for my trip. And besides, I am giving my very serious consideration to the fact that I too would like to spend some quiet time with you. Anyway, we shall see, and let the right hemisphere take care of that. It's probably midnight now. I don't have a watch. I'm hungry and beginning to be sleepy. So good night. It wasn't coffee I had. It was whiskey, but not very much. Love, Helen.
ودعوا سياسه عبيد اويس دعوا سياسه عبيد اويس عسالمي وهالمصريف عسالمي وهالمصريف 14 واثنينه 14 واثنينه عبد البال الدكانه عبد البال الدكانه وحلاوتين اللبنانه حلاوتين اللبنانه فاكرين عندنا بدنا طايفين بس انا ما طايفين